Midtown Detroit studios of WDET. This is Detroit Today. We're going to go back in time in Detroit today to the 1980s when a local sports star made a grand gesture to try to counteract the city's violent crime. A new podcast takes a look at No Crime Day, which Isaiah Thomas created in 1986 and how it both brought people together and failed to solve one of the city's deepest problems. Then we'll talk about the return of the Wayne County tax foreclosure auction last week and what it means for home ownership and development in Detroit. It's next on Detroit Today, but first the news from NPR. Detroit Today is supported by Michigan School of Psychology in Farmington Hills, Educating psychologists today who will transform our world tomorrow. Learn more at msp.edu. Good day and welcome to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. So I've been in Detroit an awfully long time, most of my life, in fact. And as long as I can remember, which is way back to the 1970s and 1980s when I was growing up here, we've had this awful reputation for being a violent and unsafe city, deserved or not. In fact, one of my earliest memories about crime in the city was a line from a movie, Airplane, which came out in 1980. And this line was uttered during a super violent drunken brawl in a bar. And a character pauses during the scene and says, it was worse than being in Detroit. I can, of course, remember the swell of homicides during the 1970s and our flirtations with the murder capital of America title. I can remember being a small kid and watching the news, hearing about the murders that were taking place and what we should be doing to prevent them. I remember the introduction of crack to the city's drug trade in the 1980s and the way it ushered in an entirely new shade of violence and killing. I can remember starter jackets and Air Jordans being the reason that people got robbed and sometimes harmed or killed on the city streets, also in the 1980s. And of course, I've seen how the disinvestment and abandonment of our city over the last 30 or 35 years has sadly invited and encouraged violence to flourish. And also, as long as I can remember, we have been anguishing in this city, especially those of us who live here, over how we should make the city safer. What should we be doing to prevent the kind of crime that we all live with? Even as crime trends down in America and has over several decades, there is still in Detroit a pinpoint attention to the idea of reducing crime, especially violent crime, and on what levers we can pull as a community or through policing to make the city safe, or at least safer, for those of us who live here. We have tried 
all kinds of things over a long period of time. And this is an issue that just continues to challenge and confound us. A new Slate podcast called One Year recently took a look back to the 1980s here in Detroit and at an event that brought real focus to the city's violent crime and tried through a grand gesture by one of the city's most influential sports stars to make a difference. There was no more revered pro athlete in Detroit during the 1980s than Isaiah Thomas, who was, of course, the star point guard for the Detroit Pistons and someone who brought us two championships in the late 1980s and early 90s. And in 1986, dismayed by the violent crime that was all over the people of Detroit, Thomas introduced the idea of no crime day, a kind of break for the city, just one day where everyone was supposed to take a pause and not partake in the violence that defined too many people's lives. That day occurred this month, 36 years ago. A new Slate podcast called One Year dives into that day. In the episode on podcast host and national editor for Slate, Josh Levine, he, he digs into why fear was so high in Detroit at the time, why Isaiah Thomas wanted to help lower crime in the city, and what happened after No Crime Day ended. It's a really interesting look at a different time in the city when a problem that we still struggle with met with innovation, met with a big idea to try to turn us in a different direction. That's where we want to begin the conversation today, with what happened then, what's happening now, and what the connection is between those two. I want to welcome Josh Levine, the host of One Year, to Detroit Today. Josh, it's great to have you with us. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. So, Let's talk about what No Crime Day was and where it came from. As I said in the open, I grew up here, and in the 1980s, I was a teenager. I do not have any memory of this happening. Now, of course, as a 15-year-old, when this happens, I was pretty absorbed in uh, my social life and the other things that you pay attention to in high school. But, but talk about how big a deal this was and how Isaiah Thomas came up with this idea. Yeah, that's interesting to me um, to hear that you weren't aware of it. Um, there was a huge amount of media coverage, both locally and nationally, about No Crime Day because Isaiah was such a huge celebrity and such an influential person in that moment. And he did make it an explicit mission of No Crime Day to go out and do outreach to young people in Detroit by doing public service announcements. And it wasn't just him, Magic Johnson, Bill Cosby did PSAs as well. Um, but he spent a lot of time just traveling around Detroit and going to schools and delivering this message, like you said in your open, that um, let's just have one day in the city at a time when um, violent crime was such a concern. Let's just have one day where that isn't a concern, where we can all take a break. And not just that, but also where we can show each other and show the world 
that Detroit isn't the Detroit that you talked about uh, that was kind of name checked as a joke in Airplane <laughs> that was known as the murder capital of the United States, um, where Detroit and Detroiters could prove that they weren't that and that they could, the, the people of Detroit had the capability to be and do um, something different. And I, I want to put this in a little bit of context, too, for, for people who maybe were not around in the 1980s. But there's something about this that strikes me as being in the same category, I guess, as lots of other things that we did in the 1980s. There was, there was almost an obsession, it seems, with big events, kind of grand gestures, as I described this uh, in, the, in the open, that would that would lead us to a, a solution for a big problem. I, I'm thinking of, of live aid or farm aid or, or the, the, the other kinds of things that we saw celebrities doing in that time period that were, were designed to, to draw people's attention to something. And the idea was, hey, we're going to do this. And then after that, Things are are going to be are going to be different. Um, you talked to Isaiah Thomas, of course, for this for this podcast. But I wonder if if he acknowledges or 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 uh, can see that that this was a thing. This was a big thing in the eighties, and we did it kind of over and over again. Yeah, one that wasn't as celebrity focused as the others you mentioned, but was huge in nineteen eighty six. Was Hands Across America, right? Right. The event to um, raise money to fight homelessness. Um, and so, yeah, Isaiah had gotten the idea for No Crime Day from his hometown of Chicago, um, where it had taken place a few years earlier, earlier in the 1980s, and had not been as large of an event as what he ended up putting together in Detroit. But he certainly understood um, what his influence was as a celebrity and that people would listen and pay attention to him because of his status as a basketball star. And he tried to leverage that to his advantage, again, by not just lending his name to it, by calling in Magic Johnson and, and other stars and, you know, saying, you know, what he told me was, I had a responsibility given my platform to do something mm. in this community and his adopted community. Um, and so he wasn't naive to think that just as a celebrity, he could snap his fingers and change <laughs> an endemic systematic issues that have been bedeviling urban America for generations. But he thought, hey, at least people will listen to me if I say something. And, and as you point out, they did uh, talk about the run up to no crime day and the day itself this was as you as you say this was a very big event had a lot of attention and a lot of people turned out to to do the things that uh, that Isaiah said we should do on that day rather than than uh, than, than be part of the violence that that defined the city yeah so it was announced that it was going to happen in the summer of 1986. And then that led to lots of um, coverage in the press. I mean, I, Isaiah and Coleman Young were on the Today Show um, right before No Crime Day. Um, 
There were national feature stories and, and newspapers. And there's also just a ton of coverage in the Detroit news, Detroit free press, local media, and, and all of that. And so there was this sense of anticipation and this, you know, questions about, um, is this going to work? What's going to happen? And there was also a, a very kind of vibrant and at times heated debate about whether No Crime Day was an appropriate um, concept given what was happening in, in Detroit, whether it was um, naive, simplistic, whether um, some something else should have been done in its place. And so um, on the day itself, you know, what the the day was, was there was a, a march, there was a rally at Hart Plaza, there was also um, community encouraged to turn on porch lights at night to show mm-hmm. a level of, of solidarity. And, um, you know, it was, it was raining. And if you go back and, and look at the, um, the video that the D- Detroit Historical Society has posted, you can see that during the rally itself, when Isaiah got up there, he talked about how the sun was breaking through the clouds. And there were, you know, more than 10,000 people in Hart Plaza who turned out to see him and to be among, um, you know, people who shared the same concern for their community that they did. And so there was a feeling of, you know, there was music, there was a feeling of kind of excitement um, that day, that, that morning. And it, it does become this, this big event as you, as you point out, but it doesn't exactly, even on that day, achieve what, what he, what we wanted uh, talk about the 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 things that happened that day that kind of exposed the idea i guess as um as a, just a little a little pollyannish given the things that were going on in detroit at that time yeah i don't think your listeners will be surprised to hear that there was in fact crime on no crime day um and yeah the po- our podcast wasn't intended as any kind of gotcha to say he said sure. there wouldn't be crime and there <laughs> and there was crime. Right. Um, but what we did do is speak extensively to um, survivors, um, you know, people who, in one case, had his partner on the Detroit police force was killed on No Crime Day. Mm-hmm. In another case, the um, sisters of a. a teenage boy who was killed on on no crime day and sort of delve deep into those stories their um, lives and backgrounds up to that day and what happened on the day and then how um, those survivors have kind of dealt with the aftermath of it um, but yeah I mean one of the big stories coming out of that day um, you know the New York Times ran a story and the headline was about this police officer, Everett Williams, who was killed on No Crime Day. And that sort of became, um, in, in some ways, in a lot of ways, the way in which No Crime Day was looked at and remembered, not as this moment of hope and possibility, but of kind of, I guess, failure would be a harsh way to, sure. to put it. Um, but that's kind of the way it was framed um, in, in a lot of the coverage and the way it was thought of. Yeah. Yeah. I, I want to play a little clip of Isaiah 
talking about uh, No Crime Day and and uh, whether it failed. Um, you, you got him to, to kind of open up about that. Um, let's listen to what he said. There's always going to be critics. And by the way, the critics, they're not always wrong. Now, when you say fail or failure to some people, they would laugh at that. Because I know from going up in that environment, one night of sleep where you don't have to worry about someone hurting you or taking something from you or killing you, if that only happened in one household, it was a huge success. Yeah. I mean, you, you can hear in his voice all this time later uh, that that kind of emotion about what he was trying to achieve, and why. Because, of course, Isaiah is from Chicago, grew up in an environment that wasn't all that different from what he found here uh, as an adult uh, that people were living with in, in Detroit. And, and as he says, look, if, if one person uh, had a better day that day because uh, there wasn't a crime that took place that might have otherwise, then then it's a success. It's a really interesting way to think about, again, this idea of these big ideas that that were the way that uh, so many people were approaching these problems in the 1980s. There is a sort of um, strength and and power that that one can draw from the mere kind of presence of uh, of other people at an event like a march and a rally just to know that you're not alone in your concern for your for your city and kind of laying a marker down like we all care and we're going to come together to try to to do something i i think the the thing that's really interesting to think about um now and and i talked about this with the city's then public information director, Georgiela Muirhead, mm-hmm. is the the framing of the day as no crime day. And um, it, it just, I think, opens up Isaiah and the city up to a degree of criticism um, and an obvious kind of gotcha moment, right? Um, but what she argued, and I think it's a it's a good argument, is that in that moment, um, Detroit needed to be bold and mm-hmm. and needed to um, say something that would get people's attention. And so she, for in my mind, kind of memorably told me, "What are we going to call it? Like we should have less crime day? Like no, that's <laughs> that's not that's not going to get any anyone's attention." Mm-hmm. And so, uh, you know, there's a certain you know, amount of, of admiration, admiration, I think we could have for somebody, anyone in any field who's willing to put themselves out there and, and take a risk of maybe being ridiculed um, and putting themselves out there that maybe they would be perceived as a failure. But like trying to do something was a, um, a very kind of an act of resistance in that moment when it seemed like there was nothing anyone could do. Yeah, yeah.
Okay, we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we are going to continue this conversation with Josh Levine, national editor for Slate and host of the One Year Podcast. Uh, We're talking about No Crime Day, which happened here in Detroit in 1986, was led by Detroit Pistons star Isaiah Thomas, talking about what happened during that day and what it meant in the story's long narrative of the fight against violent crime. We're going to talk a little when we come back about what happens in the years following 1986 and what's going on now in the city of Detroit. We want to hear from you as well. Do you remember No Crime Day in Detroit in 1986? Uh, Do you remember the event? What did you think of it? What did it make you think about? Did it make a difference in your view? Also give us a sense of what you think about crime in Detroit uh, some 40 years later, what uh, are we doing better with, uh, with violent crime? Uh, do you feel safer in the city than you did before? Also, what do you think we should do to reduce the crimes that we still have and still endure in the Motor City? As always, the number here on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to Twitter. And hashtag Detroit Today, and we'll work you into the conversation. Mary in Oxford, Dan in Southfield, we'll start with you when we get back. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. I ask on this day that we all chill and make it a crime-free city. A day when we can all feel safe. Crime's root causes were tough to grapple with, but the solution Isaiah was proposing? That was simple. September 27th is No Crime Day. I'm asking the dope man on this day, don't sell dope. I'm asking you who steals for a living on this day, don't steal. I'm asking you who kills for a living on this day, let him live. That, of course, is Detroit Pistons star Isaiah Thomas back in 1986 calling for No Crime Day here in Detroit. You're listening to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. Uh, We are looking back at that year and that event Uh, in 1986, No Crime Day here in Detroit, and talking about how big a deal it was, uh, what it accomplished, and how it fits into the really long narrative of anti-crime activity here in Detroit, something that has really defined my entire life here in Detroit from the 1970s up through uh, the 2020s. Uh, we want to hear from you as well during this conversation. Uh, give us a call. Tell us if you remember No Crime Day. Tell us if you remember taking part, perhaps, in some of the events that day. Uh, what did you think about it? What did you think about that kind of gesture as a way of trying to draw attention to the city's crime problems and uh, maybe point toward solutions? Uh, also, give us a call and let us know Uh, what you think about the crime we still deal with in the city of Detroit today and what we what we ought to be doing to try to to make that less something that we all just live with us. We've got uh, Josh Levine with us. He is the host of the podcast called uh, One Year, which recently took a look back at No Crime Day, talked with Isaiah Thomas about his involvement with it and his expectations and how he felt about what was 
accomplished that day. Um, again, 313-577-1019 is the number here on the phones. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, and uh, we'll work you into the conversation that way. Let's start with Mary in Oxford today. Mary, welcome to the show. Thank you. Uh-huh. Um, I must say, I do not recall No Crime Day, but I do recall a woman named Emily Gale mm-hmm. in the 1970s mm-hmm. who started the movement Say Nice Things About Detroit. Yep. And I just saw an article from 2015 in Trains Detroit. Uh, she's living in Hawaii, but she does come back to Detroit. She tries to keep that movement going. It was on T-shirts and bumper stickers. Yep. And I don't know if that movement uh, created a more positive uh, uh, persona for the city or not, but I just wanted to bring that up because that's the one I remember. Yeah, Mary, I, uh, of course, I remember that too, and I, I know uh, Emily, uh, she's a friend of mine now as an adult, and, and I remember as a kid admiring the things that uh, that she was doing for for the city. And, and again, that kind of big gesture, right? Uh, uh, that, that saying, say nice things about Detroit, that just became infectious. I mean, it was on bumper stickers. It was it was painted on the side of uh, one of the buildings downtown, one of the first buildings you would see if you got off uh, the Lodge Freeway onto Jefferson, say nice things about Detroit. Uh, she was also really instrumental in, uh, in starting the uh, – there, there was a run, uh, a marathon that uh, – that uh, she helped start here in Detroit. That uh, that I think is is the progenitor, at least, of uh, the Free Press Marathon that takes place every year still. Uh, and so it did have a, a long term effect. And she's somebody who has had a lot of influence over our reputation, certainly in in Detroit, and somebody who loves the city quite deeply and and shows that all the time. That's a great that's a great memory, uh, uh, Mary. I'm glad you called. Uh, to share that. Uh, let's go next to Munir in Detroit. Uh, Munir, what's on your mind? Hey, uh, <clears throat> Stephen, how you doing? Good, how are you? Pretty good, pretty good. I just wanted to say um, that it's un- it's unfortunate that, um, that even though it wasn't successful, I think um, it was a little Pollyannish thinking that it would just be no crime. I think that was an impossible bar to set. But um, I do think it should have been continued because it's about the long-term struggle and fight to change the hearts and minds of people, especially young people. So over time, uh, I think it should have been an annual um, event and celebration and encouragement where we engage the youth Mm. to change that mindset. And also, I just wanted to highlight a friend of mine. um, His name is Khalil Muhminun. He's uh, He's an imam here. Uh, or minister, Islamic minister here in the city of Detroit. Every year he does a chill, don't kill um, event. Yeah. And normally it's, it's very, it's, it's small, but it's been uh, gathering some steam in which um, some of the uh, Muslim uh, uh, ministers and, and uh, people in our community come out and engage the youth, engage the community, and really encourage uh, love and respect for one another. Mm-hmm. Um, and to uh, kind of um, have discussions on what the community needs in order to heal um, this this uh, crime epidemic that we have, um, and you know it's it's a little disingenuous as, as well. 
in regards to um, the media, um, you know, back then, to uh, or just anyone to to kind of uh, label it as a uh, a failure. Yeah. Um, because uh, we know how things work. Things change over time, uh, and things have to and movements have to build a momentum. Yeah. And I think uh, that's that, a great. That's a great way to think about it, Munir, that, that uh, you've got to build momentum. And you, maybe you start with a big event and it grows, it grows from there. Uh, Josh Levine, you, you, you referenced a little bit of what the media coverage of No Crime Day was after it happened. But talk more about how, how this was portrayed, especially because uh, of the, the high-profile murder that took place that day, but uh, but my understanding is that there were four murders in the city uh, that day, which even even for Detroit is an unusual day, and and was even back then. Yeah, those um, killings, but particularly the killing of um, police officer Ever Williams, mm-hmm. did dominate um, a lot of the coverage of No Crime Day. Mayor Coleman Young was asked about it. Isaiah was asked about it and that was um kind of if you were just glancing at coverage and saw the headlines that was probably going to be um what what the headline was that you saw in your newspaper but there were um you know certainly there there's a, a vast range of, of coverage on all all subjects in in media and so you could certainly find um stories about how there were a lot of positive things that happened that day about mm-hmm. block clubs getting together, about um, people coming out to support each other, about, um, you know, there were no crime day scholarships that um, Isaiah was um, responsible for issuing. And the way that he talked about it um, before and during that 1986 event was that he wanted it to be an enduring thing. And not just in Detroit, he talked about, we should have one in LA that Magic Johnson Mm -hmm. does and one in Boston that Larry Bird does. And after 1986, those ambitions got scaled back and eventually the events did peter out. But he thought of it in the same way that um, Munir did, that um, this shouldn't be just a one day event, that it should be something enduring and something that should build and just for various reasons that didn't end up happening. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, again, Munir really appreciate uh, the call and the perspective there. Uh, let's go to Ian in Ferndale. Ian, what's on your mind? Uh, hi there. I was hey. calling in to say that I've actually never heard of uh, no crime in Detroit day, but you know, I'm uh, 26 years old, and I've grown <laughs> You're up a little young for that. <laughs> well, I guess so, but I mean, I, I definitely have the connotation of Detroit being a, a crime-ridden place inserted into my head from, like, growing up. Like, my grandma grew up in Kirby and Trumbull mm-hmm. before. Not She didn't grow up there. She's from Mississippi, and that speaks for itself. But um, I'm trying to say that she lived in Detroit before the white flight. She, she flew, and then, you know, it's <laughs> 25 years of oh, don't go down there, you're going to get killed, and everything else. And so, to me, I've, I've had, like, some crime happen to me, uh, like, in Detroit, where, like, my car gets broken into. But if you go on the Ferndale Forum, you hear about cars getting broken into all the time. I mean, 
my first semester at Wayne State uh, was the semester that that police officer got shot and killed um, searching for, like, a stolen bicycle or something. And, mm-hmm. you know, I've been around for, like, Noel night having people have random shootings and stuff. But that happens in Macomb County. That happens in Chicago. That happens all over the place. And so I think that it's just kind of a uh, disguised or, like, covert way of uh, insinuating that Detroit, again, has crime. And this way we can get some state funding to say, oh, yeah, Detroit's a dangerous place and you better be careful and only come down here between, like, you know, uh, dawn and dusk when the storefronts are open. But maybe that's a unique perspective. Yeah, well, I mean, there's no question that... Detroit and its demographics, uh, uh, how black it is, how poor it is, uh, really have a lot to do with the way that it's talked about and thought of in the context of crime. And that's not to say that there isn't a lot of crime in Detroit. There is. That's not to say there isn't a lot of violence in Detroit. There is. It's all unacceptable. But there is, uh, you know, there's a layer of uh, derision, I think, that gets gets heaped on the city, especially in a, in a historical sense, um, that is about who who we're talking about and the kinds of people uh, that we're talking about, both in terms of uh, perpetrators and and victims uh, in Detroit, and and you know uh, that that makes it look different than it does from other from other places. Um, um, uh, you know, uh, Josh, I wonder what you make of or what Isaiah made of uh, the idea of this being, you know, a, a city where African-Americans are the, both the victims of, uh, of, of crime, but uh, most of the perpetrators, of course, because that's who lives here, uh, are also African-American. And the effect that has on the way, especially outside the city, people think of it. Yeah, again, the then public information director, um, yeah, George Ellen Muirhead, yeah. yeah, she told me that, yeah, she thought that um, the murder capital label and reputation, part of that was pathologizing the city's majority Black residents. Mm-hmm. At the same time, she thought that crime in Detroit was not a myth. Um, and you, you get into these sort of thorny situations where um, in predominantly black communities, there's the issue of both over-policing and under-policing, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, And there's the issue of how do we kind of listen to and serve and heed what um, victims are are saying and and people that live in those communities who um, have to experience crime, but also um not want to as um a previous caller said um make detroit out to be some sort of special unique place that's uh, afflicted by this problem that uh, that affects so many communities of all different types mm-hmm. in america and so that i i think was why no crime day as a concept was so fascinating to me because it fixed attention on Detroit, potentially in both a positive way and in a negative way, that it invited people to look at Detroit and ask if it was living up to this idea that um, let's just have no crime for even one for even one day. Yeah. Um, and, and what Isaiah and Georgella said to me was, 
you know, if if you're in this position in this moment where you're being talked about as the murder capital, the idea that we're going to harm our reputation <laughs> by by doing anything right. is is a little bit absurd. Like Detroit was already in a position where it was talked about and thought about in a certain way. And so they just wanted to do something. They they weren't concerned that maybe they would get negative PR because Detroit already got so much of that. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, again, Ian, really appreciate the call. Let's go next to Robert in Detroit. Robert, welcome to the show. Hi. Hey. I'm thinking that, you know, we need to have more intentionality and mindfulness. And um, I don't really like focusing on, on the negative, like no crime day. I'm, instead, we should say what we want. And maybe that's love. And instead of thinking about once a year, we think the first of the month is love day and you do something nice for somebody else hmm. or, you know talk to somebody you wouldn't normally talk to somebody different from you maybe pay for someone's coffee or whatever just do something nice on a regular basis and people in detroit are already great people we hear all the negative stories all the time but i know so many great people and i we don't focus on that yeah uh, robert i really love that. i really love that idea and I hope somebody is listening who maybe can can get something like that started, or maybe you will. Uh, the idea of a day when we're all doing something for each other and trying to celebrate the fact that we all live here and uh, want to live here and want to have uh, good lives and and want to make sure everybody else does too. It's a that's a wonderful that's a wonderful thought. Uh, Josh Levine, before before I let you go, I want to I want to give you a chance just to talk a little about one year and and what it is and why you chose uh, this particular story about Detroit for the podcast. Yeah, the premise of our podcast series is that each different season is about a different year in American history and the people and events that define that year that that changed things or that attempted to change things. And for our season on 1986, there are so many kind of broad themes that maybe you or your listeners think of when you think about that time. And and crack, the crack years in America was, was one of them. Mm -hmm. I mentioned homelessness with Hands Across America. You might also think of like uh, synth music or the excesses of Wall Street or any <laughs> sort of number of, of things. And um, what I try to do and what our team tries to do is instead of doing episodes that are just like, let's do an episode about, you know, crack or about crime or about anything else, just to pick a, an individual narrative that um, is compelling because there are people that are doing things and trying to make a, a difference and, uh, you know, fight fighting against, uh, you know, whatever in society might be holding them back um, and that sort of get at those broad thematic issues through the story of No Crime Day um, yeah. in Detroit. And and so um, that's what we try to do. And I was, you know, obviously grateful that Isaiah agreed to talk about it. And as you said earlier, it's something that um, he still gets emotional about, yeah. that he sees as a kind of defining event in, in his life and that he wants people to know about and wants to get the, the story out. Yeah, yeah. Okay, Josh Levine, it was really great uh, to have you here with us on Detroit Today and really great to listen to one year and uh, Detroit's, Detroit's featuring in that podcast. Thanks so much. Really appreciate it. Thank you. 
We're going to take another quick break. When we come back, uh, we are going to stay here in Detroit, but pivot a little to talk to the talk about the Wayne County tax foreclosure auction, which recently began again after several years of hiatus. This is the process by which if you don't pay your taxes, uh, the county auctions off your house uh, to somebody else who's willing to pay those taxes. Uh, Alex Alsop, who is vice president of research and development at Regrid, which is a property data and location intelligence company, will join us to talk about what happened last week and what we can expect in the future as we go back into this process. Stay with us for more Detroit Today. This is Detroit Today on 101.9 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. The Wayne County tax foreclosure auction recently kicked off again. The auction happens to ensure that people who are homeowners actually pay the taxes on their home. But the auction and the tax foreclosure process broadly has had terrible, terrible consequences here in Detroit. It is uh, a driver of the emptiness, the abandonment, the blight that we have in our neighborhoods, and it has kicked renters and owners, of course, out of their homes. Uh, And many of those occasions, it should be said, have been far from legal or ethical. About 100,000 Detroiters lost their homes by being overtaxed by a cumulative $600 million between 2010 in 2016, and what's more, many renters have been kicked out of their homes because those homes have been foreclosed on as landlords intentionally, in some cases, don't pay taxes. This is a pretty big mess in our community, and it's something that we've talked about for a really long time here on Detroit Today as something that we should be rethinking, that uh, we ought to be spending some time coming up with a better way to make sure that taxes are collected. Of course, those taxes make city services possible and county services possible, but that people who are unable to pay those taxes or to keep up on them aren't subject to actually losing their homes. To talk about this, we've got someone who knows a lot about the issue. Alex Alsop is the vice president of research and development at Regrid, which is a property data and location intelligence company. He also blogs on his Substack, the chargeback about property tax foreclosure and Detroit housing issues in general. Alex, welcome back to Detroit Today. Thank you so much, Stephen. Thank you for having me. So, as I said, the tax auction came back after several years of hiatus during the pandemic. Uh, There are not as many homes up for auction this time. That's a good sign. But talk about how many homes are in there and uh, how that compares with uh, previous auctions and why the number, I guess, is down this year. Sure. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. it's It's a much smaller auction this year, which is definitely a good thing. It's about 3,200 properties. That's down from the largest uh, uh, auction um, in 2015, in which there were about 25,000 Detroit properties uh, that were tax foreclosed. Um, This year, we see about the same number of homeowners in the tax foreclosure auction as we saw um, in the year or two prior to the pandemic, about 250. So, you know, we, we of course want that number to be zero, but it is good to see that there is not a um, you know, uh, post-pandemic spike uh, in the number of homeowners going into tax foreclosure. 
Um, there is an increase in the number of renters that are in the auction this year. There are about a thousand uh, renter occupied homes in the tax foreclosure auction this year. And that's an increase um, from about 250 in uh, 2018 and 2019, um, the two you know most recent auctions prior to the uh, to the pandemic. And that, that's probably due to um, you know a, a bit of a, a hangover of landlords not paying property taxes um, during the pandemic, walking away from uh, from some of these properties. Um, and, and unfortunately, that means that there there is an increase in the number of renters that are in the auction this year. Yeah. So you're one of the people in the city who's done a lot of work trying to to make sure that, you know, people know uh, what the process is here, that people know when their properties uh, are in in jeopardy of of being foreclosed. Uh, talk about how that's affecting the process. I feel like there are more people who are more on it, I guess, these days, uh, thinking about how to make sure that uh, properties don't get to this point. You do get three years before the county will uh, foreclose on your property and put it in the auction. Uh, and there are lots of ways to intervene during that three years to make sure that people don't lose their homes. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and you know, one, one of the, the, the big um, uh, points of progress has been the decline not only in homeowner tax foreclosures, but in homeowner property tax delinquency um, over the last few years. Mm. You know, the most effective way to not wind up as a, as a homeowner in the tax foreclosure auction is to not owe um, delinquent property tax debt. And the vast majority of homeowners that have lost their homes to tax foreclosure auctions over the years really shouldn't have had to pay uh, the taxes that they lost their homes over um, because they were qualified for the city of Detroit's property tax exemption, mm -hmm. which can eliminate uh, their current year's uh, property tax bill. Um, and you know, prior to the the pandemic and sort of the the, the mid part of the last decade, the city was seeing about three thousand homeowners each year receive a property tax exemption. Last year, or three thousand, yeah, three thousand homeowners uh, receive a property tax exemption each year. Uh, last year, that figure was fifteen thousand. Um, so there's been a huge increase in the number of homeowners getting property tax exemptions, which is very good. Um, uh, that prevents new debt from accumulating. But then there's also pay as you stay, which retroactively reduces the property tax debt owed by homeowners and programs like the Detroit Tax Relief Fund uh, from the Gilbert Family Foundation. And now also my half, uh, which comes from uh, MISHTA, a government program, and both of those will pay off. Uh, low-income homeowners' property tax debt, and and those are both uh, contributing significantly uh, to eliminating property tax debt amongst homeowners who receive property tax exemptions. So we've gone from, you know, really only having palliative care um, year after year mm -hmm. and trying to get as many homeowners as possible out of the auction frantically um, to now having a 100% effective vaccine. You cannot be tax foreclosed if you don't owe property tax debt. And that's what the combination of the property tax exemption and things like uh, the Detroit Tax Relief Fund um, and my half uh, are, are accomplishing. Yeah, yeah. Um, how are we doing on the idea that this is just not a productive way to A, collect taxes and B, preserve home ownership and home occupancy 
in the city? I know that's a big question, and there are lots of there are lots of things that would have to be worked out for us to do it differently. But this is such a driver of negative consequences in the city that it seems like there is, you know, a lot of people acknowledge that there's there's some urgency around it. I wonder if if the pandemic was a reason to step up that urgency or whether it was a distraction that got us away from that. Yeah, it, it's a great, great question. I think, you know, the pandemic did um, uh, I think I think it did create a lot more urgency to try to address, uh, you know, the, what what people correctly saw as as a, an enormous risk that tax foreclosure could swell uh, again if if steps were not taken to sort of tamp it down. Um, and so that was certainly good to, to see that there was a, you know, people responded with a sense of urgency uh, to prevent tax foreclosure from again spiraling out of uh, out of control. Um, but yeah, you know, the tax foreclosure auction in theory uh, was designed as a, you know, as a part of the delinquent tax system uh, of Michigan as a last ditch attempt to recover, you know, unpaid uh, property taxes. And the thesis when uh, the system was created back in 1999 was that, you know, if you if you bludgeon people with high enough interest rates on their delinquent property taxes, which is 18 percent per year. Um, uh, and and then, you know, if they don't pay those taxes, um, if you offer clean title to the property at auction, there will always be a, a market for for real estate with clean title. And you really couldn't have come up with two worse assumptions mm-hmm. um, in designing a system. Given the you know the housing market uh, of Detroit, and then and then the financial crisis and the uh, the after effects of the financial financial crisis in the city, you know both of those operating assumptions were just totally undermined, um, and and the 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 intention um, uh, of the the tax foreclosure system of the tax delinquency system, uh, you know has has never really done what it was what it was meant to do. Um, and, and instead, it's been an enormous driver, as you said, of, of blight and vacancy and also of transferring wealth um, out of the city. There are yes. um, thousands and thousands of homeowners that have lost their homes to tax foreclosure auctions over the years. Um, and those are overwhelmingly now owned by people outside the city who are reaping the benefits of rising real estate values in, in Detroit today. Um, it's uh, it's been it's been a huge conveyor belt of. Uh, of wealth out of uh, the hands of Detroiters and into the hands of uh, speculators and investors strewn across the region, um, the country, and 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 the globe. Yeah, yeah. Okay, uh, Alex Alsup, uh, Vice President of Research and Development at Regrid, which is a property data and location intelligence company. He's also a blogger on his Substack, The Chargeback. Uh, quickly, uh, if somebody is struggling with this issue right now trying to figure out how to either get their house preserved uh, from the auction or something like that. What, what What's your best advice for them? So the auction's happening right now, which, you know, if, if people are in it, there's there's there, there are a few options at, at this point. Mm-hmm. Um, um, but the best thing for someone to do who's struggling with property tax debt as a homeowner is call the Detroit Tax Relief Fund, which is managed by uh, Wayne Metro Community Action Agency. Uh, and their phone number is 313 313- Two four four zero two seven four, or you can go online to WayneMetro.org, uh, um, and that's absolutely the most important thing to do: is get those property tax 
uh, that property tax debt eliminated uh, as a homeowner. Okay, Alex, also great to have you with us. Thanks so much for being here. Thank you for having me. All right, that's going to do it for us today. Come back tomorrow when we're going to discuss a new report on the brutalities within our immigration system and then talk about where Americans' politics generally stand on this really hot issue. This is 1019 WDETFM, Detroit's NPR station, your connection to news, music, and conversation. We'll talk again tomorrow.